Welcome to Get Up in the Cool Old Time Music with Cameron DeWitt and Friends. This week's Friends, for the second time, are all of y'all, or some of y'all, about uh, five of y'all, I guess, because this is Call Up in the Cool number two. George Jackson, my bandmate and musician of his own right, uh, was giving me a hard time saying that it should have been called Get Up in the Call. Uh, I would love for y'all to write in and tell me which one you prefer and then I can retroactively change it. Uh, that felt like maybe a little bit closer to Get Up in the Cool, but maybe a little more confusing. I don't know. This is Call Up in the Cool number two for now. So basically, the first time I did this, I asked people to send in questions and tune and song requests. And the reason I did it is because I was going on a vacation to Japan and I ran out of episodes and I uh, couldn't find someone to interview. So I thought y'all could interview me kind of like a call in radio DJ show situation, a little bit of a break in format. And uh, I got a lot of really positive feedback, fortunately, <laughs> for that episode. Y'all really were into it. And it got a ton of listens. Like there was probably like 4,000 listens when typically for uh, episodes, I get like 1,500 each ish. Uh, so I uh, decided to do one again. I'm going to try to do it like quarterly or so. But let me give you a few items of business before we jump into those. So first of all, Tall Poppy String Band is doing our second Pacific Northwest tour. We're uh, starting this Friday, November 3rd uh, in Port Townsend at the uh, uh, Port Townsend Friends Meeting or whatever it's called. It's the like Quaker Meeting House. Uh, we're doing a show there. Uh, shout out to Andrew Finn McGill, former guest of the show, for uh, recommending that I check out that venue um, when nothing else was turning out. So I'm looking forward to that. Please come on out to that. Come hang out. It's going to be a great show. Then we're playing uh, the Finney Center uh, in Seattle the next day. That's uh, uh, with the Seattle Folklore Society. And then we're doing uh, Orcas Island, this little house show in Orcas Island, and then a house show in Bellingham. And then we're taking a little break, and then we're playing the... Um, uh, Eugene. We're playing in Eugene. I forget the venue off the top of my head, but, uh, and then, uh, I think that's the following Thursday. And then on Friday, we're playing the Summit Community Center. And then we're playing a final show at Abbey Weisenblum's in Portland, uh, on the Saturday night. So I hope you all come out. If you know people in those towns or somewhat near those towns, please let them know that we're coming out. Uh, we'd love to play some ripping old time tunes for them. If if you think they'd be into that, please let them know and please come on out. Uh, what else is there to mention? Oh yeah, I'm doing another four part banjo workshop series uh, online via Discord. Uh, I just uh, finished up, we're finishing up today actually, this evening, my old time songs one. We've been singing Ola Bella Reed songs, Roscoe Holcomb, all that great stuff. It's been so much fun. Uh, I think y'all should join me for the next one, which is going to be on learning tunes on the fly. That came highly requested. People really want to know how to learn tunes in this in a jam setting to be able to just jump in and play a tune that they've never heard before or don't have prepared in any substantial way. Uh, I have thoughts on that. I have techniques. I have things to offer. I might even talk about that a little bit in this episode, but not nearly as in depth as uh, in this four-part banjo workshop series. So 
I'll uh, put a link to that in the show notes. Just one more thing before we get started. Thank you so much to everyone who came out in support of Get Up in the Cool for my fundraising month last month. Uh, that was uh, so generous of y'all. And I have a big list of names to shout out. Some of those names will be from before, so I'll mention those first. These ones were before October. So I think I haven't shouted out Robert Jansen, Lee McCracken, Matthew Hickey, Natalie Pinero, Pinero. I'm not sure, actually sure how to pronounce your last name. I apologize, Natalie. My dear banjo student, I, I should get a, a pronunciation guide from you. Uh, and then um, Cindy Gilchrist um, re-upped her subscription. And then there's Casey Davis Van Atta, Zachary Wilhelm. And then starting in October, we got Sarah Clement, Benjamin Larson, Chris Marr, Artie Fisher, Peter Cunningham, Thea, last name withheld, Steve and Lita Shapiro, Gary Waldman, Will Frazier, Frank, Teresa Blair, and Christian Gerard, or Gerard, I'm... I apologize, I don't know how to pronounce that name. Adam Gulliford, hi Adam, thank you so much. And Philip Kramer, oh, good old Fiddle and Phil on TikTok. Uh, one of these days I'm gonna get him to come on, get up in the cool because uh, he's so great. And he's got a podcast too. It's like the Folk Music Educator Podcast. So y'all should check that out. There's a little free plug for Philip uh, before he comes on the show. Thank you all so much. I am in a considerably better place financially now that so many of you have signed up on the Patreon. It is really helpful. It's going to make a significant felt impact on my life. Thank you so much. I can't wait for another year of Get Up in the Cool. Okay, let's jump in. Uh, I'm not going to say stick around afterwards for <laughs> more details on how to keep up with your with this week's guest because uh, this week's guest uh, is just me and uh, the the questions that people wrote in. So uh, stick around regardless. Here's the first uh, tune request from Rebecca Richardson. Thank you, Rebecca. I'll do your tune request first, and then I'll get into your question. Uh, there was a tune I heard on an earlier episode. It referenced a creek or river in eastern Washington, perhaps the Wenatchee area, and it was called Crystal Creek, perhaps. Perhaps. I believe the player interviewed had learned it from Bruce Molsky. Uh, sorry, Molsky. I forgot to pronounce Bruce's last name correctly. Uh I have forgotten which episode I heard it on or what it was called, but I loved the tune and want to learn it. I can't find that tune anywhere and I can't recall the exact name of the tune or the player you were interviewing. Thanks for the podcast. I love listening to it with a question mark at the end. I'll assume that was a typo and that Rebecca does love listening to Get Up in the Cool. Um, yeah, so we had a bit of a back and forth and we were able to discern that the tune was Icicle Creek, which was Josie Tony's. Uh, lyrics and singing to the tune Winder Slide. So let's go ahead and get started with that. Speak. 
Telling tales of old change She's called the Esco Creek She's a wonder She'll wind up where she may I don't mind School Creek. I am so into that, <laughs> into that version of that tune, uh, because I think the the lyrics are really sweet and very like reverent, but they're also kind of like strange, like all of the the body stuff in uh, in the second verse. Um, yeah, like swimming in veins and stuff. It's it's sort of bizarre, a little spooky. I'm recording this on Halloween. Uh, yeah, uh, but I I love it. I think it's. I think there's something to lyric writing when if you write lyrics that just sound nice, uh, you can, it's easier to just tune them out. I kind of think this same thing about singing too, but when you have a little bit of like edge or a little bit of strangeness to lyrics or to the way that you sing, it can help them stand out and call attention to themselves. And uh, I think Josie's uh, really good at that. She's such a great songwriter. Um, go check. She came out with an album uh, very recently. I apologize. I don't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but uh, just look up Josie Tony and uh, go listen to that uh, album. It's really, really great. Uh, one more thing about how I performed that. Uh, I happened to be in um, Singing Birds tuning, which, uh, you know, if you're playing it in like C, which is like how um uh, Roscoe Holcomb does like Little Birdie, which is the same tuning. It would be like from, uh, I guess from first to fifth string, it would be D, A, G, C, and then with an E on top. So that's from uh, first to fifth string to 
should clarify. Um, I tried to like name those string names uh, recently at Old Growth Old Time Festival um, while I was on stage, and uh, my music, all all my music theory experience, just like disappeared. Uh, I was trying to like I was playing it in A flat, and uh, I couldn't remember um, I couldn't remember the letters. That's how much I've had to unlearn since I uh, went to George Fox University, my conservative Christian liberal arts college, uh, to uh, get my musical theory degree. Thanks again to all the Patreon supporters for helping me pay that off, which because I'm still paying it off even, what, 12 years later. Anyway, I played that in uh, Singing Birds Tune In, but down in B flat because uh, it's just felt like the easiest to sing there. Okay, so Rebecca Richardson asks, there are a lot of people with learning disabilities or physical disabilities or who are older beginners and find their motor patterns and thinking are slowing down. We are the people who leave our instruments at home or in the tent at festivals because everyone plays so dang fast. It's hard to get to know other players when we play too slowly to make playing fun for faster players. What can be done in the future to make festival jams truly welcoming and accessible to slower players and to help slower players find each other at festivals and jam together? Could festivals start organizing a dedicated slow jam tent or campfire jam to be supported through the festival and to prevent slow jams from being hijacked by faster players? What can be done in general to make social playing of trad music accessible to slower players who might never graduate to fast jams but want to be a part of the community? It's frustrating to hear so many people who pick things up quickly when we are always on the sidelines. What can be done for disability access to festivals in general? Wow, uh, I don't know how to talk about that last one. Um, <laughs> you know, in general, like in terms, especially in terms of like uh, physical ability, because so many festivals are so um, uh, not accessible, uh, just kind of inherently, uh, especially any any camping festival is going to be, I've, I've had some friends who have had, you know, because of, you know, spine stuff or things like that. Um, you know, they just can't go camping anymore and they can't meet people there and they have to go to, you know, gatherings that are like at a hotel or things like that, which are often way more expensive. So it's like, yeah, it's, I'm not, I feel hesitant to like to try to speak on this. My understanding of the conundrum is that, the more accessible a festival is uh, to people with like physical disabilities, uh, the less accessible it is to people with limited funds. Uh, and then if you have a physical disability and limited funds, uh, then you're just like out of luck. So I don't know how to, I don't know how to speak to that. Um, yeah, I'm really ignorant about that kind of thing. And I would actually really love if people want to write in to have uh, advice about that, about just like disability access to festivals in general, uh, because I think old time, you know, fiddlers conventions are like so lovely and I don't want anyone to be left out because they can't find a way to comfortably or comfortably enough uh, participate. So uh, please write in. I'm going to do more of these call up in the cool episodes. I would love some like answers, some of y'all's answers to these questions as well, especially the ones that I just don't have uh, a good answer for. Um, but in terms of, in terms of like musical ability 
and learning disability or physical disability or age? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think that there should be a jam tent at every festival that is for people who can't do super fast tempos. There should be some sort of welcome tent, some sort of place where people can come and sit down and play tunes at a comfortable pace. Now, a really easy way to do this is just to give someone at the festival, at the camp out or whatever, uh, free admission um, and um, or give a few people free admission um, who will lead slow jams specifically at scheduled times. Uh, this is like a great intentional organizational way to make this happen. I think if you don't want a slow jam to be hijacked by fast players, that's that's what you got to do. You have to like have someone facilitate that environment uh, very intentionally to make sure that everyone uh, can keep up with, I mean, within reason. Um, at a certain point, you know, if a tune gets too slow, it stops becoming a tune. Uh, and it's, re I mean, it's really, really hard to have a groove of any sort or to, to feel the time when it's, when it's really slow. So I don't necessarily know what the like metronome marking would be, but you know, um, uh, slow, medium, medium, slow, things like that. I think that's a great way to make sure that people of all ability levels have a way to access social playing because that is what so many people are specifically interested in doing. That's the reason why so many people get into old time music in the first place. So as long as there's like, you know, I don't know, like one long slow jam a day at these places, then those people can meet each other there and then they can organize their own smaller jams. Uh, and hopefully it would kind of organically move from that point on, you know, so that people can meet each other uh, who have a similar ability level and then they can go jam by themselves afterwards when the actual facilitated slow jam experience is over. So, yeah, that's, that's what I think. Uh, having a person there specifically to facilitate things. Now, um, other than that, um, any slower than that or any more accessible than that, I think you kind of have to have it be a camp. Um, camps are like the perfect environment for this kind of thing because, you know, the instructors are, are really there to, I mean, ideally to make sure that everyone sort of feels included and uh, the instructors are there to facilitate social music making that's accessible to everyone. Um, and But I, I think there should be an aspect of that present at the more casual events too, like uh, Centralia Campout, which is really great for, um, you know, there's always right at the uh, sign-in tent, there's a huge jam going on basically at all hours, but it's not always slow. Um, so I think yeah, a separate event could could be really helpful for that kind of thing at places like Centralia, uh, Clifftop, things like that. Thanks so much, Rebecca. Uh, great question, a question that I think a lot of people care about and uh, should care about. It's really important. All right, um, let's see what's up next. Ah, uh, yes, a question from Merrick Korzenowski who wrote in for the last episode, but I ran out of uh, ran out of space in that episode. So uh, let's let's do his question now. Um, shout out to Merrick, who is one of my banjo students and uh, has been studying with me for a long time. Uh, 
Here we go. Song request, Lost Girl. I'll get back to that. Uh, uh, the question might be too long to answer, but here it goes. One, practical template of using solfege to learn scales. And two, why movable solfege uses T instead of C. Okay, so that second question, I, I just don't know. Uh, so that's an easy answer. <laughs> I have no idea. And I don't actually want to look it up because uh, I think that might be uh, might be boring for folks who don't even know what solfege is. So, or don't know it by name. Uh, so solfege, short for solfeggio, which is, I mean, do a deer, a female deer, re, etc. Do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do, that. So in high school, I had the best choir director ever. Vance Seeley. I was in, you know, like three choirs at any given time. And at the beginning of each choir rehearsal, he made us do chromatic solfege exercises where we would go, like, what's a good note? Do, do. So we would go, do, do, di, do, do, di, re, ra, do, do, di, re, 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 ra, do. So we'd do all the sharps and flats of the solfege. And, you know, we go all the way up to like, do, di, re, re, mi, fa, fi, so, si, la, li, ti, do, ti, te, la, le, so, se, fa, mi, me, re, ra, do, 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 ti, do, do, ti, te, ti, do. So flats going down, sharps going up. It was like exhaustive. Uh, but it was, I think, the single most important aspect of my music education. And this was, you know, at a public school, a decently funded public school. But uh, yeah, I'm super grateful for that because... Um, yeah, I've, I've, I'm still throwing money at <laughs> my music education, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, but, you know, the thing that's stuck the most, the thing that I haven't really had to unlearn and that's been the most widely applicable has been solfege. Um, so uh, we wouldn't just do the exercises. We would also, like, learn all of our music in solfege first and then put the words to it. Uh, you know, so, in, you know, if we were learning uh, happy birthday, uh, we would go like, do, do, so, so, la, la, so, fa, fa, mi, mi, re, re, do, um, you know, or the, uh, the harmony would be like, mi, mi, do, 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 la, la, so, so, fa, fa, mi, like that. Um, we didn't learn happy birthday. It was just the first example I could think of. We were practicing not only singing and singing, you know, accurate pitches, but also, uh, describing the pitches in relation back to the key. Because in movable solfege, whatever key you're in d d is do. And so like if we're in the key of G, do is G. If we're in the key of C, do is C. And so it's basically a way of like uh, doing like the Nashville numbering system, but for individual notes. But it's way easier to say these syllables than to say like the numbers because like they're, the, the the numbers are are really dense with even though most of them except for seven are, you know have uh, one syllable like like words like six or five are really dense syllables you know with like a lot of consonants in it and that's like really hard to like jam that in uh, but like the cool thing about movable solfege is that you have one consonant and one vowel. And it's just really easy to just spit it out. It's basically a way to create like a virtual set of keys in your brain and in your like vocal cords. And yeah, because I got that music education at my high school, I 
I don't think about it consciously, but I I could solfege sing any any tune that I that I know. Uh, f- so for instance, like Merrick uh, was uh, recommending Lost Girl. I'm I'm assuming you mean the Lost Girl that has been featured on this show so frequently in the last call up in the cool episode uh we had like a most played tunes list and lost girl was like number two or something like that um so like if i were to do lost girl it would be um do re mi so la la so mi re do re mi so la so la ti do la so mi re do do re mi so la la so mi re do re mi so la so la ti do la so mi re do 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 la do re mi re do 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 re mi do mi re do do re do la so la do re mi re do re mi re do re mi re do la so mi re do something like that uh i may have messed that up but like i also haven't ever practiced the solfege before uh to me, as long as I know where Do is, those pitches are synonymous in my brain uh, with those with those syllables. So, yeah, practical template of using solfege to learn scales and then therefore to like learn tunes. It's not super practical to do four years of high school choir as an adult <laughs> where you practice that. Um, but you could start if one wanted to. You could start learning your scales uh, with solfege now um, uh, with your instrument. So like if you're playing the banjo, you can, you, you can play your scale and sing along. Just start with do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do, and then work your way back down. So like, it sound like do, re, mi, fa, or <laughs> I'm in this tuning, my bad. Do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do, ti, la, so, fa, mi, re, do. Sorry, I'm in the wrong key. That's below my range. But you could start doing that and, you know, mapping out where the pitches are and their relationship to each other. Um, yeah, and there, there's something about it that's, I think, really intuitive once you get to know it. Um, like, fa, fa wants to go down to me. And then, like, re, do, Tito, like uh, you start to develop an intuitive understanding of like how the notes are weighted and how they want to resolve or how tense they are and how they relate back to do. So, yeah, I if one wanted to, that's that's what I would recommend. Um, you know, and instead of playing letter names or thinking about letter names when you're playing. Um, This is especially for anyone who's doing any sort of relative pitch stuff. You know, like if you're playing a cross tune, it's not really an A tune, it's a cross tune. So it could be, you know, cross F sharp, but the Do is gonna be the same, you know? So thinking thinking about the function of the note as opposed to the actual, you know, letter name uh, is more important because it doesn't really matter musically, grammatically musically, whether or not you're playing an A or G. What matters is whether or not you're playing Do. I hope that makes sense. So, uh, yeah, if, uh, people, please, uh, you know, ask me more questions about that. Um, if you are curious about solfege, I don't think it's too late to learn it. I think it's really helpful for learning tunes by ear. I'll probably cover that a little bit in my workshop. Uh, yeah, because I think singing in general, even if you're not singing solfege, singing is so helpful to uh to learning how to how to hear 
how to hear tunes, how to understand tunes. Because even if you're not like a singer, or if you don't identify as a singer, we all know how to sing in some regard. Even if we're j if we just speak, because like we all know how to. I mean, for those of us who know how to speak, which is most people, you know how to mimic rhythm and pitch and inflection. You know, and if you can do that, it's little, you could probably sing as well. You just have to get to know your instrument a little more. Uh, but a lot of people, maybe they don't like the timbre of their singing voice, but they have like a, a really good ear and they just sort of assume that they that they don't because they're not like some sort of diva. They're not like Kelly Clarkson. They're not going to win American Idol. Uh, but uh, I think a lot of people actually have a pretty good ear and ability to basically match a pitch. And if you're not having, you know, your singing self, teach your instrument self how the tune goes, I think you're kind of missing out and you're slowing yourself down. That's just my my two cents. Okay, so Merrick was asking for Lost Girl. Um, I did a soulfish version of that. Uh, but because I've done Lost Girl so often on the show, I thought that I could do a version of Lost Girl that is less frequently featured on the show. Clyde Davenport's The Lost Girl. At least that's how it's how it's listed on the um, Field Recorders Collective album. Uh, so yeah, The Lost Girl. I, th I may have first heard this from Daniel Olam when he was on the show. I think this tune's great. Uh, normally it's in D, and I think I'm going to do it in E uh, out of A tuning with, um, we'll see what I put on top, either a, a B or a G sharp. But this is just how, you know, I'm playing by myself, so I'll do whatever sounds the best. Here it goes.
right, thanks, Merrick. Uh, let's move on to the next question here. Uh, we got another written one. I believe this one was sent to me. Oh yeah, this is back in June. Sorry, I didn't get to you last time, Ben. This is from Ben Burdett, a great guitar player out of Colorado. Hey, Cameron, I noticed you often play harmony parts on the banjo when accompanying. Would be interested to hear your thoughts on this. Like, are there source banjo recordings doing similar things, or would you consider it more of a modern invention? What's your philosophy of when and where to put that in, and how straight harmony, more of a contrasting part, etc.? Do you have players or recordings that have inspired this approach? What do you like and what do you not like in this kind of accompaniment? Cheers, Ben Burdett. Okay, uh, great question. Um, for those of you who have been listening to the show for a long time, you probably noticed that like early on, like back in like 2016, 2017, I would like play harmony like for every tune um, because I really liked that at the time. And I don't do it as often anymore. Uh, yeah, I think I've kind of lost a taste for it a little bit um, because I think as my like, palette for like old time fiddle and banjo music has uh, deepened I think I just like those lines more um and I and and I'm more and more interested in uh uh heterophony to use a uh a twenty thousand dollar word that's <laughs> that much because that's how much I'm still in debt for my music theory degree it basically means two voices playing or singing the same line but differently Kind of like how a you know a typical fiddle and banjo duet would uh, would would play out in an old time setting. You know the fiddle is going to do all the notes and do certain ornaments and rhythmic things that are specific to the fiddle, and the banjo is going to play all of the banjo notes, which you know are more often than not uh, they have a lot of notes in common with the fiddle, but they're taking out certain notes and replacing them with banjoistic things like. Um, strums or the thumb on the drone string for instance you know so i i like that a lot more it's a lot more kind of interesting to me than uh it used to be and i used to love just that uh i think yeah for me harmony was you know there there's different things to like about playing old time music and for me something that still is something <laughs> that i really like is i i like the game of sitting down and trying to learn how to play a tune before it's over. And then if I do learn the tune, you know, figuring out what else can be done with the tune or worst case scenario to the tune. Uh, yeah, and so like, I think maybe sometimes in the past, my like, my, my game pleasure center was like overriding like my, arrangement and taste <laughs> center and sometimes it still does and I think there can be that can be really fun and can be fun to listen to but I think because of that uh I did learn how to how to do parallel harmonies and things like that or making contrasting parts and uh yeah and sometimes I think it's it can be really nice um you know tall poppy string band occasionally will do that we'll jump into like a little section of three-part harmony you know, uh, but I, I think the thing that I do now more often is instead of doing an entire run through of a tune uh, at a parallel harmony, I'll instead grab little moments that 
I think sound nice with a par parallel harmony. So like, you know, if I'm playing, um, if I'm playing like uh, the old yellow dog, you know, instead of a da, 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 I might go, you know, do like three part chords and then, and then go back into the melody, you know, as it's normally played, you know. You know, just little moments like that where I feel like it might kind of intensify uh, or underline little moments uh, of the melody as opposed to just trying to do the whole thing or even going like, you know, things like that um, for those moments. And yeah, I think those often sound best on uh, the most iconic moments of a tune, um, especially if they're like, if they if if they stand out from the rest of the tune, but you know, for those tunes that are a little bit more physical than melodic, uh, which is so many, you know, so many fiddle tunes are more are more dance than song. You know, it's it's more about like uh, it's not really <laughs> you know there's there's tunes that like are barely melodies, but it's like it's clearly music, uh, and I think those are a little less compelling to have you know parallel harmonies on a lot of the time because it's about like the rhythm. So I want to like underline the groove as opposed to trying to, you know, underline the line because the line doesn't really matter. Um, another, another thing that I've, that I've learned uh, in, you know, playing old time music is that like the guitar is often doing this anyway, like, or at least my favorite old time guitarists who like really play linearly, they're, not necessarily doing like a direct, you know, parallel harmony, you know, to two melodies, but I really like the, I guess the polyphony, the like other line of like a bass line that has like tension and release. And I think as time goes on and I've listened to more guitar playing, I'm like, I want them to be doing the part writing on the spot, you know, aspects of, of the old time string band more than, than me. So anyway, are there source banjo recordings doing similar things? I don't, I don't know. I can't think of any off the top of my head. Uh, yeah, I think again, more often than not, I'm hearing source banjo, you know, players, they're, they're playing heterophonically, um, as opposed to playing, uh, I guess this would be like, homophonically, um, you know, uh, different notes, but with like the same, you know, rhythm and contour. I suspect it's more of a modern invention. If anyone has parallel harmony playing of like banjo players and some examples of that, uh, I would love to hear that. Please like write in and send me some, send me some links. I would love to, I would love to hear that. Uh, I, but I suspect a lot of it, is, if it does exist, it's probably more like composed classical banjo music as opposed to like string bands, you know, where, you know, <laughs> the fiddle plays the melody and the banjo plays, uh, you know, a parallel harmony to it. Um, I think you're more likely to get fiddle doing parallel harmony, uh, which is a whole other thing. And then, or, or maybe like mandolin playing a parallel harmony. But uh, I mean, that's the other thing. It's like most... It's like melodic banjo playing is, or clawhammer playing at least, is more of a modern invention, kind of. Um, you didn't hear as much linear stuff in, in those old source recordings. Uh, 
Yeah. So I think that's a big part of it. It's just like the the limitations of of a typical claw hammer technique um, don't necessarily lend themselves to full out parallel harmonies of melodies. So, yeah, uh, I, w- I will say one thing that I still love doing is whenever I get to play with Trisha Spencer and Howard Raines, uh, Trisha loves seconding and I like trying to find the third harmony on the banjo while they're playing double fiddle together. And then I, I, I live for Trisha Spencer's, uh, sort of approval. She gives this like approval side eye (laughs) kind of (laughs) when, when I do that. And, uh, it's like my favorite thing. Uh, so, you know, I'll, I'll do it whenever it's, uh, appreciated. (laughs) All right, on to the next question. Uh, ben didn't have a tune recommendation, but I think I'm going to be able to address the harmony thing with this next question. So this next question is from Liam Bailey, who decided to uh, make a voice memo and send that in to me. So that's uh, really lovely. So we can hear someone else's voice on this episode. Here we go. Hey, Cameron. Uh, kind of like you, I came to traditional music later than some of my peers in the old time and Irish scene, uh, I was always fascinated and a bit jealous of the confidence that I could hear uh, in their playing and the ability to access an authenticity that uh, I was finding in the recordings that resonated with me. So my first question is this. It's easy to revel in the value of the fluency that comes to a player that was groomed by a music family and raised within a trad scene and festivals and the whole culture. But I would love to hear you speak to any advantages or attributes or characteristics in your own playing that you feel comes from the fact that you were not really raised in a scene or raised by players um, within a trad scene. Okay, question part two. If you were in the process of conceiving your own recording project, maybe a duo or a solo record, either, I would be very excited to hear. What would you do to honor traditional rules and standards, and what would you do in contrast to the traditional rules and standards? I guess, in other words, like what trad boundaries would you like to push? Instrumentation, reharms, lyric, rewrites, production, all that stuff. And what trad boundaries would you feel like you wanted to maintain? Like what, what would you worry might turn off a more conservative trad connoisseur? Feel free to answer all or none of that. <laughs> my my tune recommendation is uh, going to be Dance, which I heard off of Reese Jones and Christina Wheeler's Starry, Starry Crown record. Thanks so much, Liam. Uh, yeah, I'll definitely get to answering those questions. I just wanted to uh, address the little sensor that I put in there. So, like... I don't know exactly what the deal is with the the G word. Um, my impression is that that was a word that I think English people gave to Romani people because they thought they were Egyptians, but they aren't. And similarly, I think some uh, indigenous folks here like that word and prefer to use that word other than indigenous or native american or whatever uh and i think that same is true for you know the g word um but i'm not sure so i'm just trying to play it safe um yeah hopefully i don't (laughs) erase anybody or make anyone mad (laughs) 
that's <laughs> I'm always going to be risking doing that. Uh, so anyway, I, I'm also very familiar that uh, that word is so present just, you know, as a metaphor for any sort of whimsical person, you know, so it's like in so many like popular songs and ideas and films uh, and, you know, old old time tunes or tunes of uh, other traditions. And yeah, and that like some of those folks self-identify that way, but a lot of them don't. So what are you going to do uh, other than do your best and uh, try to piss off the smallest amount of people <laughs> possible? So hopefully that's what will happen here. But yeah, I'm totally going to play that tune because it's it's so lovely. And um, I think I'm going to be able to address some of the harmony stuff uh, from Ben's question. So I'll get into that as well. But first of all, you're asking about something that I have talked a lot about on the show, like these ideas of like authenticity or ownership. Um, I think the the word you used groomed, like people who are groomed into this music community is a really interesting one, uh, especially because the word groom has such intense connotations uh, these days. But um, sometimes it kind of kind of feels like that's what <laughs> what uh, some of my peers who grew up in this music, like what it was like for them. Like they didn't really get an option about whether or not they were going to participate in it or like it. Uh, so I guess, I guess that's, that's one thing that I kind of appreciate about my own story. I wouldn't necessarily say it's like an advantage, uh, but I really like, you know, converting to old timeism as opposed to being, you know, born into it because I've, you know, never really felt like uh, I had to do any differentiation from it. Whereas if I grew up in it, I might have some more chips on my shoulder, maybe about the music. And, you know, I have some because now I've been playing it, you know, since like 2012 or so. Uh, so like that's, <laughs> I have some feelings about it, but, you know, I didn't, grow up with parents who played it or who made me play it or who made me play in contests. So I think that's like the the big thing is I get to appreciate it uh, as someone who is opting in as opposed to as someone who has to come to terms with this huge part of like my origin. So there's that. But the thing that occurs to me with this question is that to the extent that there is a tradition, you know, of old time, uh, it's it's a revival tradition, you know, because the actual tradition isn't a tradition, it's traditions, and it's so hyper-local and hyper-specific uh, that it it's a whole different thing than just someone who grew up in the revival scene. So, like, ideas about, like, authenticity, you know, get really fraught really quickly, which is part of the reason why I've kind of like stopped that line of questioning in get up in the cool lately, or I've tried to adjust it a little bit because I think people have really particular ideas about what is authentic and what is real and who owns what. And I think I'm honestly kind of starting to sour on a lot of that kind of discourse because of how rhetorical it often is, you know, like what is authentic old time music? You know, what is an authentic woman? You know, <laughs> what is, uh, what, what land belongs to who, you know, these questions, uh, there are, I think, responsible ways to talk about them. Uh, but often they're talked about in like, I think really bad faith and in really oversimplified ways. And, uh, 
I'm not going to go on a huge tangent about all of that. All I will say is that the more I get into old time music, the more I realize that uh, it isn't a tradition. And the closest that it can be to a tradition is a, a, a revival tradition. You know, that is the tradition. And then any traditions that feed into that are their own unique uh, idiosyncratic traditions. You know, it's like what's old time banjo playing? You know, when you like, when you listen to Roscoe Holcomb and then you listen to Dink Roberts or Murph Gribble or any of the many like four string old time banjo players, you know, that have existed throughout, throughout history, just like on this continent alone, you know, like that question really falls apart. And, you know, the only answer that you have is people got their hands on some banjos and they started making music. And maybe they received music from someone close to them. Maybe they heard it on the radio, you know, like, yeah, these questions of like authenticity break down uh, really quickly. And that is not to diminish anyone who has a musical background or heritage that is conventionally seen as being authentic you know, or like respectable or like true vine or whatever. Uh, yeah, I think that is really special. But also, you know, I really value my musical background, which is I didn't have a background in this and I'm getting, I'm opting into this music. And then there will be people who learn from me. And then that will be their experience of authenticity. They received some old time music from me, maybe my kids, maybe people in my community, you know, and yeah, that's the way that information travels these days. And I'm not super interested in trying to measure authenticity by some, by some sort of like antiquated metric because it feels, it feels inappropriate and it feels irrelevant. So that's where I'm coming from there. As far as authenticity goes, uh, I like my story. Uh, maybe it would have been cool to like, you know, growing up in the Portland area in Portland and in the Portland area, maybe it would have been cool to know how much awesome old time music was happening at the time here. And it would have been cool to get into it a little earlier, but maybe I wouldn't have been ready for it. Maybe I wouldn't have been interested in it. I don't know. It, it certainly took me a while. So I'm glad I play it now. And I'm glad I started when I did, uh, as for how I would approach recording like a recording project uh you're asking about solo or duo but i will say that like tall poppy string band is like for me such an ideal approach to old time music uh because both morgan harris and george jackson uh have really really compatible i think to me um attitudes uh and and desires and aesthetics you know around around old time music we're like all really nerdy and we all really love to uh dig into source recordings and to figure out what made those individual versions of those tunes special and to try to participate in the thing that makes it special uh and and we're also creative 21st century musicians who aren't going to try to pretend that we, you know, haven't listened to other music. Uh, you know, like the <laughs> earlier on in the year, we were driving around Colorado 
And we just spent a whole leg of our tour listening to uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers because we all grew up listening to Red Hot Chili Peppers, you know, and who's who's to say if that has made its way into some of our arrangements or not, but it's definitely affected our musicality. And I don't think we're trying to specifically avoid Flea's influence on our playing. And it's probably made its way in one way or the other. And I'm I'm cool with that. Because uh, because there are aspects of that music that I like a lot. I <laughs> I don't really listen to them much anymore. You know, that's just a, like a silly little example. So yeah, I think there's a way to have reverence for the music without trying to preserve it in amber, if you will. And I, I and I think there's a way to honor traditions. Uh, while participating in it in a way that is, that accounts for, you know, one's own desires and technique and ability and uh, and whimsy sometimes too. So yeah, uh, Tall Poppy String Band is a dream project for me for that for that reason. Uh, but when it comes to maybe like a solo or a duo project um, at Old Growth Old Time, I just uh, headlined the Saturday night there with uh, my my sibling-in-law, Jonathan Craig Roberts, and we did like banjo and piano duo stuff and some banjo and organ stuff. And it was so fun to like make some connections that I don't typically get to hear in this revival tradition, but I think are like kind of precedented. Uh, so for instance, you know, we played Clyde Davenport's Done Gone, uh, you know, in B flat. And the way that Clyde Davenport plays, it's like clear that the tune is kind of raggy in its origins, but he kind of plays it the same way that he would play, you know, any of his like, to me, more like, like wonky Kentucky fiddle <laughs> kind of stuff. Uh, but because it has that kind of like raggy feel to it, uh, Jonathan uh, played on the piano, like stride piano with the left hand and played the full melody in the right hand and played it like a ragtime piano arrangement. And I did like a melodic claw hammer approach to play, you know, all of the melody notes. And when they were played together, I thought, I thought it sounded really cool and really fun and kind of camp. And uh, yeah, I really liked that. And I think there are, are some ways that that was very traditional. I mean, piano and banjo go way back as like duo partners, you know, like classical banjo with like piano accompaniment. Uh, I mean, you could see, go see Aaron Jonah Lewis play, you know, classical, you know, fingerstyle banjo usually uh, with piano backing, you know, any old time in Detroit or, or when they're on tour. Uh, but maybe, maybe not necessarily playing, you know, Clyde Davenport tunes, but I think there's a connection there and it makes sense. So I like, I like doing things that are traditional, uh, but maybe underrepresented like that kind of piano playing, um, or, you know, doing something traditional, like a very like note-tastic, you know, uh, fiddle tune played on the banjo, but with claw hammer technique, as opposed to like a melodic banjo style that you would hear you know, at the turn of the century. So that kind of thing is like fun for me. And I get a lot of pleasure out of that. 
I think the most out there that we went for that show. And I hope we record this at some point because uh, it would be a great recording project. The most out there that we went was uh, we did a version of Peggy Seeger's uh, When I Was Single or When I Was a Single Girl. I forget the title of it. You know, and Peggy Seeger is such a, a great like Roscoe Holcomb style like banjo player. Like she plays some like great Kentucky style banjo and she'll sing those songs like straight up. But for some reason, her version of when I was single uh, is like this, like it feels like a Renaissance art song or something. Like she's playing like classical guitar and she's singing in her like little bird like version of her singing, like her little bird voice. And it's so cool. And I tried to do that with Jonathan, you know, with Jonathan playing organs, kind of copying or uh, doing their best to like capture the vibe of the guitar part. But then I, and they, they did a great job at that, but I couldn't sing like Peggy Seeger for some reason, <laughs> uh, because I'm not like a goddess. Uh, so instead I just like did some like theater kid stuff. Like I just sang it in like a, like stage tenor version. And it was really fun and silly and dramatic. Uh, and I think it emphasized some of the, the drama and camp of like those lyrics and, and some of the comedy of it. Like, you know, there's, <laughs> there's a lot to chew on in there. Like uh, when I was single, I ate biscuits and pie. Now that I'm married, it's eat cornbread or die. Uh, obviously that's sort of like horrifying, like the effect that the poverty can have on nutrition. I mean, I love cornbread, but I'm assuming that's not what, uh, she's talking about in, in the, in those lyrics. Uh, but like, it was really fun <laughs> to, to sing, eat cornbread or die, like in this like, uh, operatic sort of like tenor delivery, um, with my hands free and to just like gesticulate, like I really enjoyed doing that and you know i was definitely playing with the tradition but i felt like i was honoring the tradition in that moment so that's the kind of stuff i'd be interested in doing so hopefully i don't know hopefully we'll make some sort of recordings of that at some point uh in a more official capacity okay Thanks for those questions, Liam. And thanks for this awesome suggestion uh, of, uh, I'll, I'll just call it Romani dance. Cause I think that still, you know, honors the, the people who are at least invoked, you know, in this tune title. Um, and for fun, uh, I think I'll do one little bit of overdubbing for this episode and I'll play this tune three times through and I'll do the first time just solo banjo. And then the second and third time I'll add a, a, a fully parallel or as fully as I can, a, a parallel harmony part um, just to lean into uh, to Ben's question. So here we go. Here's Romani dance.
All right, next question is a bit of a zag. This is from Kayla Paul, who said, hey Cameron, hope I didn't get this in too late. You did for last time, but I really wanted to get back to this. Hi Cameron, I know you're a fan of the band The Mountain Goats, and I was just curious what your favorite Mountain Goats song slash album is. Um, I'd also like to follow that with a request for you to perform a Mountain Goat song. Does not have to be the same as your answer. Yes, thank you so much for this question, Caleb. Uh, yeah, I'm a big Mountain Goats fan. I got into them, it must have been in like 2011, 2010 maybe, because uh, I was really into uh, Owen Pallet, who's this like songwriter who plays violin and I think was like the main arranger for like Broken Social Scene, but then started doing his own stuff. I used to go by Final Fantasy, make these really nerdy songs. Anyway, he was opening for the Mountain Goats in Portland, and I went to go see him, and then stuck around for the Mountain Goats, and I've been a huge Mountain Goats fan ever since. Uh, that's when they were touring uh, their album, The Life of the World to Come, which is a really strange album, and they, they he, he never plays songs from this album, I think, like touring because i've seen him every time he's come through town since uh and he just never does this album again but i thought it was really great uh particularly um i really like his song uh psalms 40 verse 2 that's the name the title of the song uh and the kind of idea of that album is to take these bible verses and to juxtapose the verse with the content of the song itself. And often the, those were really clever connections. Uh, I think John Darnielle has a really interesting spirituality and relationship with religion. Uh, I do a lot less of that kind of thing. <laughs> I'm a lot less interested in that uh, these days, but it really hit at the time. And I still really like that song. And I have a version of me doing it somewhere on YouTube. Uh, so y'all can look that up if you want. I don't think it's like the best song for introducing people to the mountain goats you know but it hit for me personally um probably like my my favorite song there's so many really good ones but uh was their their song the best ever death metal band in denton i think it is such a powerful song and it's made me cry before and it also has some of the like humor and spirit of John Darnielle's lyrics that I think is uh, really, really unique to, to, to his songs. Um, particularly his ability to have protagonists who don't conform to the respectability politics of their, of their communities or their settings. Uh, either like, often he, he just like writes about uh, either bad people <laughs> Like people who are just kind of bad on purpose or like uh, people who are about to commit great acts of violence or who have already done that um, or people who are profoundly misunderstood. Uh, yeah. And uh, just kind of like anywhere in that spectrum, I think he does a really good job at humanizing and celebrating those people's stories without lionizing those characters. And I think that's kind of, it's one of his earlier albums uh, All Hail West Texas uh, back in 2002. And I think that's one of his best ever songs because of that. And I started to make a version of that that I was going to play here. And then I was coming up with a really lovely arrangement. And then I got to this one lyric in there. And I, and it 
it would be inappropriate, I realized, to sing this song because of some some recent events in the world. Um, there's there's a very specific detail that would just be really, really insensitive for. It's kind of insensitive anyway in the song, but especially now. So if you're all are very curious about that, you can go look up those lyrics uh, and you can see why I chose not to do this song. Uh, so instead, I decided to do the song Broom People. Y'all, y'all know broom people? <laughs> we got any broom, broom people in the audience? Uh, what album is that from? Broom People is from The Sunset Tree, which, as far as I know, is like John Darnielle's first, or or maybe only, or one of the only like autobiographical albums that he has. And that's such an awesome album. And I love this song, and it's it does some similar things to the best, uh, the best ever death metal band, uh, in Denton. Uh, I really like how he leans into kind of gross, yucky feelings, uh, things that would maybe bring some people shame, but he finds pride in them. And I think there is something useful about that to anyone who is struggling to look at or accept parts of themselves that they you know feel complicated about and especially in this song it's kind of about i mean depending on how you read it like it's it's kind of about like rejoicing in uh in maybe like a codependent uh maybe an unsustainable kind of co-regulating uh relationship uh but in a way that's like pretty moving and uh yeah it's it's not necessarily, again, condemning or condoning, but it is like living in it in a way that, you know, I really respect. So anyway, uh, here's, here's my attempt to uh, claw hammer some, some mountain goats. Here's broom people. Hudson in the garage All sorts of junk in the unattached spare room Dishes in the kitchen sink New straw for the old room Friends who don't have Spiral ring notebook 
Thanks for hanging out, everyone. I'm gonna leave you with one final question and tune. Uh, it might end a little bit on a whimper <laughs> because of the nature of this question. David Leone says, I'd like you to discuss other styles than clawhammer banjo used in old time music, if there are any. So my final tune is going to be a non-clawhammer banjo tune. And I think it'll be fine. <laughs> it'll be serviceable, but uh, you know, I'm not much of a three or two finger player. Uh, so I'll do a little bit of that. Uh, but yeah, as I was saying earlier, like Murph Gribble from Gribble Luskin York is uh, playing three finger, I think all the time in that, uh, in that band. And there's all sorts of different kinds of finger styles. Uh, there is a uh, plectrum style, you know, like four style or four string banjo present in old time music all the time uh, if you dig enough. And then there's just the fact that like Clawhammer isn't one coherent style, you know, like Clawhammer, I think as far as I know, I'd love to hear people write in about this and correct me, please. But I, I believe Clawhammer didn't used to be what everyone called it. You know, uh, there are a lot of different names for things that are like claw hammer. Like I think, you know, people called it overhand or down picking, uh, frailing obviously. And then I think, is it like Kentucky folks would just call it drop thumbing as opposed to like, they would call the whole technique drop thumbing, you know? And, and then obviously like, uh, the ancestors of the banjo, you know, like the accounting and the Ngoni, you know, like they're playing a very similar style and, I don't know what they called it, you know, but they're definitely not calling it claw hammer. Um, stroke style would, you know, like the minstrel style is like very similar to claw hammer, you know? So like all of those styles of playing are like super different from each other, even though we would all kind of lump them into claw hammer banjo, you know, these days. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that's one thing. Clawhammer isn't one style of playing, uh, but I understand that the spirit of the question. So maybe I'll talk more about other styles. Uh, I mean, just listen to Doc Boggs. Doc Boggs' style of, of banjo playing is so cool. Uh, I don't really know how to do it, but he does this like, I think he does like melody with his thumb on like the low strings and then drones with two with like index and middle on strings one and two and then grabs the the drone string with 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 his thumb um but he has this like really interesting texture that to me doesn't really feel like it's like technically three fingers but it feels more like two fingers but it has more notes than you could get with <laughs> just two fingers you know there's like that kind of banjo playing. Um, then there's like Matoki Slaughter, who uh, I believe played a lot of, un unfortunately, what people now commonly call as like Seeger style, even though he played a bunch of different kinds of banjo as well, you know, but like, it's like claw hammer, but you do an up instead of a down and then follow that by like a strum and a thumb. Uh, 
you know, she, she would play a lot of that kind of style. And I, I heard, um, I was introduced to her by, uh, by Ian Boone when he came on Get Up in the Cool and started playing some of her stuff. It's so cool. Uh, yeah, there's so many, there's so many lovely ways of, of playing, of playing old time music on the banjo. Uh, the, the snake milkers, old time snake milkers. Is that what they're called? I I, don't, I think they're defunct now, but, um, their banjo player was, uh, a plectrum style banjo player who would just play, uh, I don't know if he played a four string or only played on four of the strings of a five string, but with a pick, but he would do it in standard G tuning. I think his playing is awesome. It's so cool. I don't remember his name. I forgot. I haven't seen him in a really long time or heard that band in a while, but um, yeah, they're, they're so great. And the banjo playing is a big, is a big part of that. And he's playing with, he's playing with a pick. So there's just so many great ways to play banjo. Have I said that yet? There's so many great ways to play banjo other than claw hammer. And even within the umbrella of claw hammer banjo, there's so much good stuff. So uh, yeah, I'm not good at any of that, but I'm going to do my best to play a little bit of Bonaparte crossing the Alps, which I learned from Becky Hill when she came and danced on Get Up in the Cool. Uh, I think this tune is so cool and lends itself to, you know, I think I'm technically using three fingers in this version, but it's mostly kind of like a two finger kind of thing. And I think it lends itself to that kind of melody because there, the note density is a little, a little lighter and you can really just like dig into like big dramatic quarter notes. So Anyway, I'll do I'll do my best. <laughs> Maybe end end this episode on a bit of a uh, bit of a whimper, uh, like I said earlier. But uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, again, Tall Poppy String Band is on tour in the Pacific Northwest, Port Townsend, and Seattle, and Orcas Island, and Bellingham, and then Eugene, and then the Summit, uh, which is like Blodgett outside of Corvallis, and then Portland. And sign up for my Learn and Tunes on the Fly uh, banjo workshop series. Uh, that's at camerondewitt.com slash store, I believe. I'll put a link in the show notes if it's uh, either way. And thank you again to everyone who signed up at patreon.com slash getupinthecool last month. It really means a lot to me. Can't make the show without you. I want to make that clear. I, I wouldn't be able to do this with all the other stuff that I have to do in my life, uh, unless it was my job and y'all make it possible for it to be my job. And it means a lot. It's a cool job to have. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. If you were unable to get it, <laughs> to, to get your, uh, uh, Patreon sign up, uh, before the end of October, that's okay. You can actually do it year round. I just make a point of having one month where I, you know, guilt y'all into doing it uh, because sometimes that's what's necessary in order to get people to actually get around to doing it. But it's not too late. You can sign up right now or, uh, yeah, I mean, sooner is better. So just do it whenever. Uh, Patreon.com slash get up in the cool. Thank you all so much for listening. Come back same time next week for more Get Up in the Cool. And here's that Bonaparte crossing the Alps. And after that, uh, for the Patreon subscribers who get the bonus track i'll do the second tune request from dylan from last week's episode uh, charleston gals and d sign up for the weekly bonus track to to go hear that and uh dylan if you're not signed up for that um i mean i would recommend that you sign up for that but if you're not uh, i'll send that to you so just reach out to me okay here's bonaparte crossing yet another 
series of mountains. Thank you.